Hello everyone, grab some snacks, grab a drink, and please remember not to open your window no matter what you see or may hear outside of the vehicle. And with that, please buckle up and let's get a move on to exit 666. The Windigo by Algernon Blackwood Chapter 1 A considerable number of hunting parties were out that year without finding so much as a fresh trail, for the moose were uncommonly shy and the various nimrods returned to the bosoms of their respective families, with the best excuses the fact that their imaginations could suggest. Dr. Cathcart, among others, came back without a trophy, but he brought instead the memory of an experience which he declares was worth all the bull moose that had ever been shot. But then Cathcart of Aberdeen was interested in other things besides moose, Amongst them, the various of the human mind, this particular story, however, found no mention in his book on collective hallucination for the simple reason, so he confided once to a fellow colleague, that he himself played too intimate of a part in to form a competent judgment of the affair as a whole. Besides himself and his guide, Hank Davis, there was a young Simpson, his nephew, a divinity student destined for the wee Kirk then on his first visit to Canadian backwoods, and the letter's guide, Defago, Joseph Defago, was a French Canuck who had strayed from his native province of Quebec years before and had got caught in rat portage when the Canadian Pacific Railway was a building, a man who in addition to his unparalleled knowledge of woodcraft and bush lore could also sing the old voyeur songs and tell a capital hunting yarn into the bargain. He was deeply susceptible, moreover, to that singular spell which the wilderness lays upon certain lonely natures, and he loved the wild solitudes with a kind of romantic passion that amounted almost to an obsession. The life of the backwoods fascinated him, when doubtless his suppressing efficiency in dealing with their mysteries. On this particular expedition, he was Hank's choice. Hank knew him and swore by him. He also swore at him, just as a palmite. And since he had a vocabulary of picturesque, if utterly meaningless oaths, and conversation between the two stalwart, hardy woodsmen was often of a rather lively description. This river of expletives, however, Hank agreed to a damn a little out of respect for his old hunting boss, Dr. Cathcart, whom, of course, he addressed after the fashion of the county as Doc, and also because he understood that young Simpson was already a bit of a person. He had, however, one objection to Defago and only one, which was that the French Canadian sometimes exhibited what Hank described as the output of a cursed and dismal mind, meaning apparently that he sometimes was true to type Latin type, and suffered fits of a kind of a silent morsense. When nothing could induce him to utter speech, Defago, that is to say, was imaginative and melancholy, and as a rule, it was too long a spell of civilization that induced the attacks for a few days of wilderness invariably cured them. This then was the party of four that found themselves in camp the last week in October of that shy moose year, way up in the wilderness north of Rat Portage, a forsaken and desolate county. There was also Punk, an Indian, who had accompanied Dr. Cathcart and Hank on their hunting trips in previous years, who had acted as a cook. His duty was merely to stay in camp, catch fish, and prepare venison steaks and coffee a few minutes' notice. 
He dressed in worn-out clothes bequeathed to him by former patrons, and except for his coarse black hair and dark skin, he looked in these city garments no more like a real redskin than a stage negro looks like an, a real African. For all that, however, Punk had in him still the instincts of his dying race, his tactern, silence and endurance survived, also his superstition. The party round the blazing fire that night were despondent, for a week had passed without a single sign of recent moose discovering itself. Defago had sung his song and plunged into his story, but Hank in bad humor reminded him so often that he kept messing up the facts so that it was almost nothing but a perturbed out lie, that the Frenchman had finally subsided into a sulky silence which nothing seemed likely to break. Dr. Cathcart and his nephew were fairly done after an exhausting day. Punk was washing out the dishes, grunting to himself, under the lean-to of branches where he later also slept. No one troubled to stir the slowly dying fire, overheard the stars were brilliant and sky quite wintry. There was so little wind that ice was already forming stealthily along the shores of the still lake behind them. The silence of the vast listening forest stole forward and enveloped them. Hank broke in suddenly with his nasal voice. I'm in favor of breaking new ground tomorrow, Doc. He observed with energy, looking across at his employer. We don't stand a dead doggo's chance around here. Agreed, said Cathcart. Always a man of few words. Think the idea is good. Sure, Pop, it's good. Hank resumed with confidence. Suppose now you and I strike west up Garden Lake away for a change. None of us ain't touched that quite bit of land yet. I'm with you. And you, Defago, take Mr. Simpson along in the small canoe, skip across the lake, protege over into the fifty island water, and take a squint down that southern shore. The moose yarded there like hell last year, and for all we know, they may be doing it again this year, just to spite us. Defago, keeping his eyes on the fire, said nothing by the way of reply. He was still offended, possibly about his interrupted story. No one's been up that way this year, and I'll lay my bottom dollar on that, Hank added with emphasis, as though he had a reason for knowing. He looked over at his partner sharply. Better take that little silk tent and stay away a couple of nights, he concluded, as though the matter were definitely settled. For Hank was recognized as general organizer of the hunt and in charge of the party. It was obvious to anyone that Defago did not jump at the plan, but his silence seemed to convey something more than ordinary disapproval. And across his sensitive dark face, there was a past, a curious expression like a flash of firelight. Not so quickly, however, that the three men had not time to catch it, though. He funked for some reason, I thought, Simpson said afterwards in the tents he shared with his uncle. Dr. Cathcart made no immediate reply, although... The look had interested him quite enough at the time for him to make a mental note of it. The expression had caused him a passing uneasiness he could not quite account for at the moment. But Hank, of course, had been at the first to notice it, and the odd thing was that instead of becoming explosive or angry over the other's reluctance, he at once began to humor him a bit. But there ain't no spiel reason why no one's been, been up there this year, he said with perceptible hush in his tone. Not the reason you mean, anyway. Last year, it was the fires that kept folks out, and this year, I guess, I guess it just happened so. That's all. His manner was clearly meant to be encouraging. Joseph Defago raised his eyes a moment, then dropped them again. A breath of wind stole out of the forest and stirred the embers into a passing blaze. Dr. Cathcart again noticed the expression in the guide's face. He again did not like it, but this time the nature of the look betrayed itself. In those eyes, for an instant, he caught the gleam of a man scared in his very soul. 
It disquieted him more than he cared to admit. Bad Indians up that way? He asked with a laugh to ease matters a little. While Simpson, too sleepy to notice this subtle byplay, moved off to bed, Prodigus yawned. Or anything wrong with the county? He added when his nephew was out of hearing. Hank met his eye with less than his usual frankness. He's just scared, he replied good-humoredly. Scared stiff about some old fairy tale. That's all, ain't it? old pal, and he gave Defago a friendly kick on the moccasined foot that lay nearest the fire. Defago looked up quickly as form an interrupted revere, a revere, however, that had not prevented him seeing all that went on about him. Scared nothing, he answered with a flush of defiance. There's nothing in that bush that can't scare Joseph Defago, don't you forget it. The natural energy with which he spoke made it impossible to know whether he told the whole truth or only a part of it. Hank turned towards the doctor. He was just going to add something when he stopped abruptly and looked around. A sound close behind them in the darkness made all three start. It was old Punk who had moved up from his lean-to while they talked and now stood just beyond the circle of the firelight, listening. Another time, dog, Hank whispered with a wink. When the gallery ain't stepping down into the stalls, and springing to his feet, he slapped the Indian on the back and cried noisily, Come up the fire and warm your dirty red skin a bit. He dragged him towards the blaze and threw more wood on. That was a mighty good feed you gave us an hour or two back, he continued heartily, as though to set the man's thoughts on another scent. And it ain't Christian to let you stand out there freezing your old soul to hell while we're getting all good and toasted. Punk moved in and warmed his feet, smiling darkly at the other's vocabulary, which he only half understood, but saying nothing. And presently, Dr. Cathcart, seeing the further conversation was impossible, followed his nephew's example and moved off to the tent, leaving the three men there smoking over the now blazing fire. It is not easy to undress in a small tent without waking one's companions. Cathcart, hardened and warm-blooded as he was in spite of his fifty-odd years, did what Hank would have described as considerable of his twilight in the open. He noticed during the process that Punk had meanwhile gone back to his lean-to and that Hank and Defago were at hammer and tongs, or rather, hammer and anvil, the little French-Canadian being the anvil. It was all very like the conventional stage picture of Western melodrama. The fire lighting up their faces with patches of alternate red and black, Defago in slouch hat and moccasins in the part of the Badlands villain. Hank open-faced and hatless with the reckless fling of his shoulders, the honest and deceived hero, the old punk, eavesdropping in the background, supplying the atmosphere of mystery, the doctor smiled as he noticed the details, but at the same time something deep within him, he hardly knew what shrank a little, as though an almost imperceptible breath of warning had touched the surface of his soul and he was gone again. He could seize it. Probably it was traceable to that scared expression he had seen in the eyes of Defago. Probably. For this hint of fugitive emotion otherwise escaped his usual so keen analysis. Defago, he was vaguely aware, might cause trouble somehow. He was not as steady of a guide as Hank, for instance. Further than that, he could not get. He watched the men a moment longer before diving into the scruffy tent, where Simpson already slept soundly. Hank he saw was swearing like a madman in a New York saloon but it was the swearing of affection. The ridiculous oaths flew freely now that the cause of their obstruction was asleep. Presently, he put his arm around almost tenderly upon his companion's shoulder and they moved off together into the shadows 
where the tent stood fairly glimmering, Punk, too, a moment later, followed their example and disappeared between his odorous blanket in the opposite direction. Dr. Cathcart then likewise turned in, weariness in his sleep, still fighting in his mind with an obscure curiosity to know what it was that had Defago scared about the county up Fifty Island Waterway, wondering, too, why Punk's presence had prevented the completion of what Hank had to say. Then sleep overtook him. He would know tomorrow. Hank would tell him the story while they trudged after the elusiveness. Deep silence fell about the little camp, planted there so audioliciously in the jaws of the wilderness. The lake gleamed like a sheet of blank glass beneath the stars. The cold air pricked in the draught of the night that poured their silent tide from the depths of the forest. With messages from the distant ridges and from lakes just beginning to freeze, they lay already the faint bleak odors of coming winter. White men with their dull scent might never have divined them. The fragrance of the wood fire would have concealed from them their almost electrical hints of moss and bark and hardening swamp a hundred miles away. Even Hank and Defago, subtly in league with the soul of the woods as they were, would probably have spread their delicate nostrils in vain. But an hour later, when all slept like the dead, old Punk crept from his blankets and went down to the shore of the lake like a shadow silently, as only Indian blood can move. He raised his head and looked about him. The thick darkness rendered sight of a small anvil, but like the animals, he possessed other senses the darkness could not mute. He listened and sniffed the air motionless. As a hemlock stem, he stood there. After five minutes again, he lifted his head and sniffed, and yet once again, a tingling of the wonderful nerves that betrayed itself by no outer sign ran through him as he tasted the keen air, then merging his figure into the surrounding blackness in a way that only wild men and animals understood. He turned, still moving like a shadow, and went stealthily back to his lean-to and his bed. As soon after he slept, the change of the wind he had divine gently stirred the reflection of the stars within the lake, rising among the far ridges of the county beyond Fifty Island Water, it came from the direction in which he had stared, and it passed over the sleeping camp with a faint and sighing murmur through the tops of the big trees that was almost too delicate to be audible. With it down the desert pass of night, though too faint, too high even for the Indian's hair-like nerves, there passed a curious thin odor, strangely disquieting, an odor of something that seemed unfamiliar, utterly unknown. The French-Canadian and the man of Indian blood each stirred uneasily in his sleep just about this time. Though neither of them woke, then the ghost of that unforgettably strange odor passed away, and we lost among the leaves of tentlessness forest beyond. Chapter 2 in the morning the camp was astir before the sun. There had been a light fall of snow during the night, and there was sharp. Punk had done his duty betimes, for the odors of the coffee and his fried bacon reached every tent. All were in good spirits. Wind shifted, cried Hank vigorously, watching Simpson and his guide already loading the small canoe. It's across the lake, dead right for you fellers, and the snow will make the bully trails. If there's any moose mussing around up there, They'll not get so much as a tail and scent of you with the wind as good as it is. Good luck, Monsieur de Fago, he added, uh, fictitiously giving the name its French pronunciation for once. De Fago returned the good wishes. Apparently in the best of spirits, the silent mood gone. Before eight o'clock, old Punk had camped to himself. Cathcart and Hank were far along the trail that led westward. 
While the canoe that carried DeFago and Simpson with silk tent and grub for two days was already a dark speck bobbing on the bosom of the lake going due east, the wintry sharpness of the air was tempered now by the sun that topped the wooded ridges and blazed with luxurious warmth upon the world of lake and forest below. Loons flew skimming through the sparkling spray that wind lifted. Drivers shook their dripping heads to the sun and popped smartly out of the sight again, and as far as the eye could reach rose the leagues of endless crowding bush, desolate in its lonely sweep and grandeur. Untotted by foot of man and stretching its mighty and unbroken carpet, right up to the frozen shores of Hudson Bay. Simpson, who saw it all for the first time as he paddled hard in the bows of the dancing canoe, was enchanted by its austere beauty. His heart drank in the sense of freedom and great spaces, just as his lungs drank in the cool and perfumed wind. Behind him in the stern seat, singing fragments of his native chanties, Defago steered the craft of birch bark like a thing of life answering cheerfully all his companions' questions. Both were gay and light-hearted. On such occasions, men lose the superficial worldly distinctions. They become human beings working together for a common end. Simpson, the employer, and Defago, the employed, among these primitive forces were simply two men, the guider and the guided. Superior knowledge, of course, assumed control, and the young man fell without a second thought into subordinate position. He never dreamed of objecting when Defago dropped the Mr. and addressed him as Say Simpson or Simpson Boss, which was invariably the case before they reached the farther shore after a stiff paddle of twelve miles against a headwind. He only laughed and liked it, then ceased to notice it at all. For this divinity student was a young man of parts and character, though as yet of course untraveled, and on this trip the first time he had seen any county but his own, and little Switzerland. The huge scale of things somewhat bewildered him. It was one thing he realized to hear about primeval forests, but quite another to see them, while to dwell in them and seek acquaintance with their wildlife was again an initiation that no intelligent man could undergo without a certain shifting of personal values Hithoro held for permanent and sacred. Simpson knew the first faint indication of emotion when he held the new 303 rifle in his hands and looked along its pair of flawless, gleaming barrels. The three days' journey to their headquarters by lake and by lake and portage had carried the process a stage further, and now that he was about to plunge beyond even the fringe of wilderness, where they were cramped into the virgin heart of the uninhabited regions as vast as Europe itself, the true nature of the situation stole upon him with an effect of delight and awe that his imagination was fully capable of appreciating. It was himself and Defago against a multitude, at least against Titan. The bleak splendors of these remote and lonely forests rather overwhelmed him with the sense of his own littleness. That stern quality of the tangled backwoods, which can only be described as merciless and terrible, rose out of these far blue woods swimming upon the horizon and revealed itself. He understood the silent warning. He realized his own utter helplessness, only Defago as a symbol of a distant civilization where a man was a master stood between him and pitless death of exhaustion and starvation. It was thrilling to him, therefore, to watch Defago turn over the canoe upon the shore, pack and petals carefully underneath, and then proceed to blaze the spruce stems for some distance on either side of an almost invisible trail. With the careless remark thrown in, 
Say Simpson, and if anything happens to me, you'll find the canoe all correct by these marks. Then strike due west into the sun to hit the home camp again. See? It was the most natural thing in the world to say, and he said it without any noticeable inflection of the voice. Only it happened to express the use of motion at the moment with an utterance that was symbolic of the situation and his own helplessness. As a factor in it, he was alone with the Fago in a primitive world. That was all. The canoe, another symbol of man's ascendancy, was now to be left behind. Those small yellow patches made on the trees by the X were the only indication of its hiding place. Meanwhile, shouldering the packs between them, each man carrying his own rifle, they followed the slender trail over the rocks that had fallen trunks, across half-frozen swamps, skirting numerous lakes that fairly gemmed the forest, their borders fringed with mist, and towards five o'clock found themselves suddenly on the edge of the woods, looking out across a large sheet of water in front of them, dotted with pine-clad islands of all describable shapes and sizes. Fifty island water, announced Defogel warily, and the sun's just going to dip his bald old head onto it, he added with unconscious poetry, and immediately they set about pitching camp for the night. In very few minutes, under those skillful hands that have never made a movement too much or movement too little, the silk tent then stood taut and cozy, the beds of balsam bows ready laid, and a brisk cooking fire burned with the minimum of smoke, while the young Scotchman claimed the fish they had caught trolling behind the canoe. Defago guessed he would just as soon take a turn through the bush for indications of moose, may come across a trunk where they have been in rubbed horns. He said as he moved off, or feeding on the last of the maple leaves, he was gone. His small figure melted away like a shadow in the dusk, while Simpson noted with a kind of admiration how easily the forest absorbed him into himself. A few steps, it seemed, and he was no longer visible. Yet there was little underbrush hereabouts, and the trees stood somewhat apart, well spaced, and in the clearings grew silver birch and maple, spear-like and slender against the immense stems of spruce and hemlock. But for the occasional prostate monsters and the boulders of gray rock that thrust uncalfed shoulders here and there out of the ground, it might as well have been a bit of park in the old county. Almost one might have seen it in the hand of a man. A little to the right, however, began the great burnt section, miles in extent, proclaiming its real character as it is called, where the fires of the previous year had raged for weeks, and the blackened stumps now rose gaunt and ugly, bereft of branches, gigantic match heads stuck into the ground, savage and desolate beyond words. The perfume of charcoal and the rain-soaked ashes still hung faintly about it. The dusk rapidly deepened, the glades grew dark, and the cackling of the fire and the wash of little waves along the rocky lake shore were the only sound audible. The wind had dropped it at the sun, and in all that vast world of branches, nothing stirred. Any moment it seemed the woodland's gods, who are to be worshipped in silence and loneliness, might stretch their mighty and terrific outlines among the trees. In front, though, doorways pillared by huge straight stems, lay the stretch of fifty island water and a crescent-shaped lake some fifteen miles from tip to tip, and perhaps five miles across where they were camped. A sky of rose and saffron, more clear than any atmosphere Simpson had ever known, still dropped its pale, streaming fires 
Across the waves were the islands, a hundred surely rather than fifty, floated like the fairy barques of some enchanted fleet, fringed with pines those crests fingered most delicately the sky, they almost seemed to move upwards as the light faded about to weigh anchor and navigate the pathways of heaven instead of the currents of their native and desolate lake. And strips of colored cloud like flaunting pinons signaled their departure to the stars. The beauty of the scene was strangely uplifting. Simpson smoked the fish and burnt his fingers into the bargain in his efforts to enjoy it, and at the same time tend the frying pan and fire. Yet ever at the back of his thoughts lay that, that other aspect of wilderness, the indifference to human life, the merciless spirit of desolation which took no note of man, the sense of his utter loneliness now that even Defago had gone. Come close, he could look about him and listen for the sounds of his companion's returning footsteps. There was pleasure in the sensation, yet it was perfectly comprehensible alarm, and indistinctively the thought started him, what should I do? What could I do? If anything happened, he did not come back. They enjoyed their well-earned supper, eating untold quantities of fish and drinking unmilked tea strong enough to kill men who had not covered thirty miles of hard going eating little on the way, and when it was over, they smoked and told stories around blazing fire, laughing, stretching weary limbs, and discussing plans for the morrow. Defago was in excellent spirits, though disappointed at having no signs of moose to report, but it was dark and he had not gone far. The brulee, too, was bad. His clothes and hands were smeared with charcoal. Simpson, watching him, realized with renewed vividness their position alone together in the wilderness. Defago, he said presently, these woods you know are a bit too big to feel quite at home in too comfortable in i mean eh he merely gave expression to the mood of the moment he was hardly prepared for the earnest the solemnity even with each guide took him up you've hit it right simpson boss he replied fixing his searching brown eyes on his face and that's the truth sure there's no end to him no end at all then he added in a lowered tone as if to himself there's lots found out that, gone plumb to pieces. But the man's gravity of manner was not quite to the other's liking. It was a little too suggestive for the scenery and setting. He was sorry he had broached the subject. He remembered suddenly how his uncle had told him that men were sometimes stricken with strange fever of wilderness, when the seduction of the uninhibited wastes caught them so fiercely that they went forth, half fascinated, half deluded, to their death, and he had shrewd idea that his companion held something in sympathy with that queer type. He led the conversation onto other topics, onto Hank the doctor for instance, and the natural rivalry as the two who should get the first sight of the moose. If they went due west, observed Defago carelessly, there's sixty miles between us now with old punk at halfway house, eating himself full to bustin' with fish and coffee. They left together over the picture, but the casual mention of those sixty miles again made Simpson realize the prodigious scale of the land where they hunted. Sixty miles was a mere step, two hundred, little more than a step. Stories of lost hunters rose persistently before his memory, the passion and the mystery of the homelessness, and wandering men seduced by the beauty of the great forest swept his soul in a way too vivid to be quite pleasant. He wondered vaguely whether it was the mood of his companion that invited the unwelcome suggestion with such persistence. Sing us a song, Defago, if you're not too tired, he asked. One of those old voyeur songs you sang the other night. 
He handed his tobacco pouch to the guide and then filled his own pipe, while the Canadian, nothing loth, sent his light voice across the lake in one of those plaintive, almost melancholy chanties with which lumbermen and trappers lessened the burden of their labor. There was an appealing and romantic flavor about it, and something that recalled the atmosphere of the old pioneer days, when Indians and wilderness were leagued together, battles frequent, and the old country father off than it is today. The sound traveled pleasantly over the water, but the forest at their backs seemed to swallow it, down with a single gulp, permitted neither echo nor resonance. Alright everyone, we're finally at our exit, 666. Grab your things, unbuckle that seatbelt, and remember, try to be nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you next. Have a good night.